Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, in 2018, science journalist Linda Mapes drew international attention for her day-by-day coverage of the female orca known as Tahlequah, who carried her dead newborn calf more than a thousand miles through the Salish Sea before finally letting her go. That reporting formed the basis for Mapes' newest book, Orca, Shared Waters, Shared Home. We'll talk with Mapes about the sophisticated social networks that orcas form and the environmental threats they face, including this year's record heat and drought that are imperiling the salmon they rely on. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The ripple effect of California's drought reaches as far as the top of the marine food chain, orcas, by further endangering the prey they rely on to survive. Science journalist Linda Mapes has been exploring the unique southern resident orcas who roam as far south as California's central coast in search of dwindling salmon and the environmental threats they're enduring. Mapes drew international attention to these mammals in 2018 with her coverage of a female southern resident orca who carried her dead newborn calf through the Salish Sea for 17 days before letting her go. Linda Mapes, welcome to Forum. Thank you. Could you take us back to 2018 and remind us of the female orca Tahlequah and her story? Because you say her story changed the conversation about orcas. Well, she really did. So actually, it was just about this very week in the summer of 2018 when I got word that a mother orca was doing something that scientists know that other 
very intelligent, socially connected mammals do, orcas, uh, other species of dolphin, some mammals, which is grief if they lose a member of their family. And scientists were familiar with orcas doing this as well, that if they lost a calf, they would, they would stay with that animal. But what she was doing was something no one had ever seen before, which was she was carrying this calf, not just for a day, but day after day after day. And about day three, a press release went out that I got a hold of. And um, I happened to be up in the San Juan Islands where these uh, whales chase fish in the summertime. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to stay with her. I, I'm going to write about her her journey of grief every single day uh, mm. and and put it out there to the world. And, and you know, uh, by the time that journey ended, which was 17 days and more than a thousand miles of carrying a six foot long, 300 pound calf that she mm. had to decide after every breath to go down and pick up again before the tide would sweep it away. By the time we finished covering that story, there were more than 6 million people reading about her online, 6 million people. And the Seattle Times, uh, the paper where I work as the environment reporter, we've never had that much response to a story. And mm. I think I know why. It's because she was a mother who happened to be a whale. And so suddenly, Tahlequah J35, a member of JPOD, uh, transformed the conversation because this was no longer just random black and white wildlife or some other endangered species, these were families, close-knit families with, with deep emotional ties to one another. And if anyone had ever lost anything in their life, they knew what she was going through. Yeah, you say that you're convinced she never actually gave up on the calf. I'm positive because uh, ultimately, honestly, uh, not to be gruesome, but it just started falling apart. And, uh, you know, when I saw her, carrying the calf, there was just no question that, that she was in a space of witness and devotion that uh, nothing was going to shake her off of. And, and in fact, scientists were quite concerned about her. Was she eating? What, what was this doing to her health? Because as a relatively young mother, she could, uh, she's an incredibly important member of this very tiny population of just 75 whales. Uh, and to everyone's relief, honestly, uh, suddenly she just didn't have it anymore. And she was going on as if nothing had happened. She was just mm. fine, strong and surging through the water with her family. Her family that never left her throughout that whole journey. They stayed by really to witness her in the water with the calf and, and to see her family following along with her. It was like a procession. It, it was a procession. Well, how rare are births in this pod or that to particular birth? Too, 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 all too rare. And this is the heart of the matter. She, that birth, which was, by the way, a female, so all the more tragical loss, was the first birth to these calves, to these animals in uh, in three years. It was the first live birth. And so, you know, when that calf could not survive, it, it just sent ripples of shock and dismay throughout this region, which which very much identify with the southern residents. Now, there, there are orcas in every every ocean of the world, and they are the top predator everywhere they live. And they've been in our waters locally for 14,000 years. They co-evolved with the salmon they depend on. And so when suddenly this beloved group of families, J, K, and L pods, could no longer successfully reproduce and were dwindling year by year to such a small population, it, you know, you, you, it breaks through the noise to a sense of what is so wrong with this place we call home that it can no longer support the top predator. What does that say about us? What does it say about the Salish Sea?
Yeah. One of the things that I was struck by was that at the same time that Tahlequah was carrying her dead calf, you say that there was another story that was playing out uh, of another very malnourished uh, orca. Can you tell us about what was happening there? This is the thing, and it's so added to the sense of crisis around these animals that even as Mother Orca Tahlequah was carrying the calf, this tiny little whale just three years old, uh, named J-50, also called Scarlet, uh, was wasting away before our eyes. Now, no one knows why she was starving to death. All of the orcas are not visibly starving to death right before our very eyes. They're all food limited, and we'll come back to that. But what was going on with her was truly harrowing because she had she was the thinnest orca anyone had ever seen alive. She was so skinny, the bones of her neck were showing. And she, you know, she had already had a very tough uh, start in life. She was called Scarlet because of the scars on her body of being midwifed by the other mother orcas, uh, literally pulled from her mother. And so she had tooth rake marks all along her body. And yet she was an incredibly joyful whale. She was known for her spectacular breeches and, you know, but she just was uh, so at risk and, and clearly so compromised that um, the National Marine Fishery Service, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration as the parent agency, launched this unprecedented international rescue effort. They were reaching out to uh, veterinarians across the water in BC and other biologists across the water in BC and into nonprofits to try to mount a rescue effort for her. And they were, they were literally darting her with antibiotics and had created a rescue scheme in which if she was ever apart from her mother, they would try to temporarily take her into captivity and, and nurse her back to health, which as you can imagine was highly controversial. You know, but as it, but as it was, she, she never did leave her mother's side and her mother never left her side. And uh, despite all this effort, including a, a practice feeding mission with medicated fish in mm. which uh, salmon were shot through a tube below the water to this little whale who ignored the fish. Um, you know, despite all that, she eventually just sank beneath the waves in September and of that same year and was never seen again. You mentioned that they are food limited. Can you talk about how their fate is intertwined with that of Chinook salmon? Why this particular salmon? <laughs> I love that question. It, it's so frustrating to all of us who wish they would just eat something else. You know, can't you pick something that's plentiful? Can't you be like the transient or bigs killer whales that eat seals? And they're enormously fat and healthy and birthing uh, calves right and left, or, or as a matter of fact, why aren't you doing as well as the northern residents, uh, who also, like the southern residents, eat only fish, primarily salmon, primarily Chinook? Why aren't they doing as well as the northern residents? Well, the reason is the northern residents live in a place a lot more like Puget Sound used to be, quieter water, cleaner water, and with access to many more runs, a greater variety and more abundant runs of Chinook salmon. And in fact, first crack at the Chinook coming out of Washington rivers, which turn right when they emerge from the Salish Sea and the Columbian Snake and head up to Southeast Alaska. So the Northern residents um, have it so much better than the Southern residents. The Southern residents' primary foraging range is from the Campbell River of Vancouver Island, um, all the way south to where you are in California, all the way to Monterey Bay. 
So these are your your urban orcas. They live in the most urban environment of any orcas in the world, and they, they preferentially eat Chinook because they are the biggest salmon in the sea, more calories for the hunting effort. And this made sense when they co-evolved with the salmon because Chinook were plentiful, they're available year-round, unlike other stocks of salmon, and they're big. And so it made perfect sense back then. But today, with the massive depletion of Chinook really throughout their range, but especially in the range of the southern residents from Puget Sound and the Salish Sea south to where you are, uh, these are some of the most endangered salmon runs um, anywhere in North America. And in fact, the, the winter run Chinook that frequent the Sacramento River system they are one of the 10 species in the spotlight, as in, uh, that is to say, one of the most endangered animals that NOAA protects. So you have this very sad tableau of an endangered animal relying on a threatened and endangered species for its survival. And, it's, yeah. and it is nowhere more dire than it is in California. Yeah, you recently wrote about how the drought is even further exacerbating that. We're coming up on a break, and we actually also, um, in a segment, uh, uh, our 9 a.m. host also did a, a segment about just the efforts to try to protect salmon populations during this California drought. But can you just talk a little bit about how the drought is affecting Chinook salmon? And yeah. Right. Well, salmon are cold water animals. 56 degrees is about as warm as they like it. And with the drought, these stream flows are just extraordinarily low. They're at 40%, 40, 40% of average in the Columbia snake system. And, you know, it, that's just a disaster. Warm water uh, kills fish, pure and simple. They First of all, they'll stop migrating number one, and number two, even if they try to persist in their migration inland in our rivers and streams, uh, you know, warm water speeds up their body metabolism and it speeds up any and all disease processes. And so they just die. And this happened before in 2015 when we also had a terrible drought and heat wave and we lost uh, half the migrating sockeye. I mean, in the lower Columbia, they never even started to make their 1,000-mile journey back to the inland reaches of the Sawtooth Mountains. I mean, these animals and all races of Chinook are cold water, all races of salmon are cold water animals. And so in a drought, you have lower stream flows, and that means uh, heat, air temperatures uh, more quickly heat up the streams and rivers that these animals rely on. And, and it's just, um, it's a slaughter, frankly. We're talking with Linda Mapes, environment reporter for the Seattle Times. Her new book is Orca, Shared Waters, Shared Home. And we're talking about the extinction crisis they're potentially facing with their reliance on an endangered prey like California's Chinook salmon. And uh, you can join the conversation with your thoughts or questions about orcas by calling 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed.org, or reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Or after the break, I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. My guest, Linda Mapes, writes, the southern resident orcas are an endangered predator seeking increasingly endangered prey, and climate change is raising the stakes for both species. We're talking about orcas, the extinction crisis they face, and Linda Mapes has written a new book called Orca Shared Waters, Shared Home. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can do so by calling 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. Can we spend a little time talking about just what makes these orcas so distinctive? You have called them urban orcas. I was really struck by your descriptions of how they come really close uh, <laughs> to Seattle. I mean, right into the Puget Sound area. Can you talk about what happens when they do that, the reaction that they get? <laughs> You know, um, the Southern residents are the celebrities of Puget Sound country. When when they come in to our local waters, which is typically in the fall and the winter when they're chasing chum, uh, you know, people go a little bit nuts. The, the ferries stop on their route and people rush to whatever window they can see out of and out onto the decks. And if people um, get an alert and there is actually an orca alert for people to you know, get an alert on their phone if they happen to be nearby and they'll rush out of their offices and out of their homes and out of the grocery store and they'll head to the local beaches in West Seattle and on Vashon Island and even downtown. And and so this sense of downtown orcas, you know, who else has that? is one of the reasons that um, I actually have faith that these animals are going to make it because there are so many people who care so much about them and are very aware that they live in orca and salmon country and identify themselves as living in orca and salmon country. While this is a profoundly felt uh, native cosmology who regard the orcas as the people who live under the sea and actual direct descendants and family members, this isn't only an Indian thing. I mean, people here uh, in Seattle and beyond really think of themselves as salmon people and orca people. And honestly, I think as a reporter, this is one of the best things the orcas and the salmon have going for them. I was dismayed when I was down in California and I was, you know, writing the story about the uh, poor winter run Chinook struggling in the Sacramento River and the heroic efforts by biologists there and others to try to uh, keep them alive. And, uh, you know, the photographer Steve Ringman and I went to a restaurant after a 105 degree day and ordered a salad and about five glasses of water and the, the waitress came at the end of our meal and she saw my credit card and she said oh Seattle Times why are you here and I said oh we're doing a story about salmon and orca and she said oh well I don't get cable so I don't know about that and I thought well hmm. that's truly sad you know the Sacramento River was second only to the Columbia as a salmon producer back in the day and it is still critical to the fate of these orcas. They come all the way down to Monterey Bay chasing those succulent, delicious winter runs Chinook. So, you know, this is a California problem too. And California is an incredibly important um, piece of the future for these whales. And I think about L25, she's, she's kind of my totem animal. You know, she was born in 1928 and she's still out there with her family looking for food. And she still comes all the way down with L-Pod to uh, San Francisco Bay 
looking to nail these juicy fish with her family. Well, is she is she really getting any fish or is she just working off the memory of fish? Is she working off the teachings of her mother and her grandmother before her? These are matriarchal societies. The oldest female whales lead the leave the orcas to fish, especially when salmon runs are scarce, and they have this vast ecological knowledge of where the fish are or where they are supposed to be that's passed down to them from their mothers. And so, you know, this um, these really are best thought of as ancient societies. I mean, the orcas are organized into tight family groups. These groups stay together for life. They pass on specific calls that are unique to their pods. Um, they, they transmit culture of where the fish are and, and how to catch them, by the way. You know, it's not just any fish anywhere. It's, it's Chinook in a specific place where they use the environmental features of that place, rock walls, tidal currents, migratory patterns to get those fish where they are when they're supposed to be there. So these animals are are working off of evolutionary and ecological knowledge that's been built up over thousands of years. And what's happened is we've changed the game on them. You know, we have created a whole new situation with vast environmental change, dams, development, uh, we've depleted the fish runs that they're counting on in the places where they know they're supposed to be, when they're supposed to be there. So the orcas are still coming to some of these places. And in some cases, such as the San Juan Islands here in Washington State, uh, the local people are in dismay, in dismay because the orcas really don't come here that much in the, in the summer anymore. Why is that? Because the salmon in the Fraser River and BC are also greatly depleted. And so it's been more than a hundred days of this summer that J-Pod has not been seen in the, in the Salish. And why mm. is that? These are becoming increasingly coastal animals because they're trying to nail these Chinook wherever they can find them. No longer in the comfortable, quieter inland waters of the Salish, but now having to go out and catch them in the open ocean before these uh, animals come inland to, to go get them wherever they can find them. And that's their ability. That's their remarkable hunting prowess. That's why they are the top predator. I've actually heard that J-Pod is looking better than it's looked in the last 10 years, which is a source of hope. J-Pod is also, J and L-Pods have had some calves since Telequa lost her calf. They're, they've had a total of five new uh, babies since then. And even Telequa has had a new baby. So you know, I don't want people to give up and think it's too late. It isn't too late. This isn't some crybaby species that can't get it done. I mean, if they have what they need, which is fish, they will persist. But it's up to us to make space for their survival, step back and make the habitat fixes and changes and exercise the restraint that we must so that we can continue to share these waters with salmon and the orca that depend on them. Again, Linda Mapes is environment reporter for the Seattle Times. Her new book is Orca Shared Waters, Shared Home. Can you talk a little bit about how they communicate? The calls are unique to each pod? This is thrilling to me. Uh, one of the great joys of uh, being a reporter and, and also an author is, is you get to talk to experts who've devoted their whole lives to understanding um, these animals and the ecology they depend on. And one of those people was John K.B. Ford, who's a BC scientist who was one of the first to crack the code on orca calls and understand that uh, actually these weren't just like random sounds. Uh, in addition to using sound to hunt, and we'll come back to that, 
uh, they use uh, a language, an, an actual dialect of language, to stay in communication in a dark ocean with one another. And J-Pod, L-Pod, and K-Pod uh, have calls that are unique to each of them. And as a matter of fact, the southern residents make calls that are different from the northern residents or from the transient orcas or from the offshores. These mm. are the three different orca ecotypes of orcas that all share the northeastern Pacific. And, and none of these animals would mistake the calls of one of these other uh, ecotypes for another. They, they know exactly who they're hearing and who they're talking to in the dark. And they use sound to stay connected in a dark ocean. And it's how they find mates that aren't uh, siblings <laughs> or from their same pod. It's, it's how they find their food. Sound is everything to these animals. Everything. Well, just, just to give our listeners a sense of what these killer whales sound like, Here's a recording of, I believe these are calls and whistles used in social communication. They were taken in Glacier Bay National Park, Alaska. So I'm not sure if these are the Southern resident orcas or not, but, but let's hear a little bit of it. So these, these calls and whistles, this is socializing? Yeah, it really is. It's, it's hey, I'm over here, or, or, hey, this looks like pretty good fish over here. Let's go there. Um, or, you know, the thing that I want to stress about these animals is they have really rich and beautiful social lives. They're very, very sexy. They're in season year-round, and they're, they're constantly pregnant, uh, and they're, they have very, very sensual lives with one another and also with their young. They're always touching, rubbing against one another and playing. Uh, the northern residents have a have a particular mode of play that, that we don't think any other ecotype has. They, they like to push the air out of their lungs and scooch low onto beach stones and get belly rubs and belly scratches. It's and the kids don't leave, right? I mean, no, they stay together for life, which I find amazing. I mean, God, I can't get through a weekend. And it's like these families stay together for life. And, and in fact, the matriarchs, uh, these are matriarchal societies in which the female whales not only lead the pods to fish, but share the catch. And they preferentially share to their sons. Uh, and their provisioning is so important that um, these sons, if they lose their mothers, will be three times more likely to die within the next couple of years. So, you know, they're intensely socially bonded. And these calls that they make are, are part of their communication and part of their social lives. You know, when you uh, hear a superpod, which is when JK and LPod all come together, uh, it sounds like a calliope underwater. It's this magical cacophony of, of notes all up and down the scale. And, and for myself, you know, the first time I heard orcas, it was so surprising. I mean, here's this massive um, animal making these little tiny squeaky calls. They sound like cats. It, it, it <laughs> doesn't match, right, the, the magisterial eminence of this gigantic, incredibly athletic animal. But but so it is. That's that's the call they make. And, and they make those sounds, by the way, with phonic lips in their blowhole. That's not coming out of their mouth. It's coming out of their head. 
Um, and the other sounds they make are clicks. And these click trains, again, come out of their head. They come through the melon, which is a big fatty deposit right on their forehead. And they can train that melon like a flashlight. They can move it and point it uh, at whatever it is they're trying to discern and find uh, underwater. And this is way more sophisticated than just sonar, this this ability they have, which is called echolocation, they actually in see inside not only one another, but whatever fish they're targeting. They, they, they pick their species by the size of the swim bladder in a fish. Oh, that's a Chinook. Go get it. And they have to chase down each and every Chinook one at a time. These animals do not school, and they put on quite a fight, let me tell you. So the orcas are twisting and turning and diving and accelerating and stopping and chasing these animals down into holes and along rock walls. And they're doing all this in the dark at a depth of more than, in some cases, a thousand feet. That's how yeah. deep they'll go. So, you know, sound is how they find the fish. And, and that's why noise is, is part of the three challenges that they face. They face three main threats, lack of adequate salmon reliably within their foraging range where they know how to catch them. Uh, number two, sound, which masks the, the delicate tiny sound of a bounce back from a swim bladder that they need to hear to go find and get a fish. And if you've got a lot of racket underwater, which we do from freighters and industrial shipping to ferries to recreational boats and whale watch tours, it's a racket under there. And that effectively reduces the size of the habitat in which they can effectively fish and the hours of time in which they can effectively hunt. So sound. And then finally, pollution. You know, the, to the extent these salmon are carrying toxins in them, uh, those are going right into the whale's blubber. So if they're not getting enough to eat, just like us, that's when they burn their fat and those toxins are released to their bloodstream. So there are really three major threats and they're interrelated. Well, Tom writes, the silver salmon coho are also endangered in California, such that all silver salmon caught by sport anglers must be released. Steelhead rainbow trout are also badly threatened in California. Silver salmon and steelhead spawn mainly in the smaller creeks and rivers like Lagunitas Creek in Marin County that were badly impacted by overgrazing and clear-cut logging. Might the orcas have fed on silver salmon and steelhead trout as well as the king salmon? They do. We know they do. And the, and the way we know that is because scientists have been gathering their scat and analyzing it to see, number one, how much nutrition stress are they under? They can tell that by stress hormones in the scat. And Sam Wasser at the University of Washington and his team, including Deborah Giles at Wild Orca, they go out and, and they gather scat from these whales and they analyze it. And they've discovered that uh, two thirds of the pregnancies that are lost to the southern residents are due to nutritional stress, which is just terribly sad. But they also know by analyzing uh, the DNA in the scat of the fish, and Brad Hansen at uh, Northwest Fisheries Science Center in Seattle has made a real study of the DNA of the fish that they find in these animals. Scat are also little bits of prey that they gather up from the water from a predation event. They know where these fish are coming from and they also know the species. And so we know that they primarily eat Chinook, especially in the summer, but they also eat chum. They also will take coho and they will even eat steelhead and even a little bit of lingcod, even halibut in the wintertime when they start becoming more opportunistic. Um, so the Chinook thing is, is critically important. I don't want to de-emphasize that, but it isn't the only thing they eat. They also do eat these other fish. So 
you know, um, salmon, it's also not enough to restore just one salmon run someplace and say, oh, the Fall Chinook and the Columbia River are doing great, so we're okay now. These these animals cover a vast foraging range from southeast Alaska and southern BC all the way to California, and they follow a seasonal round of salmon migrations. And they have to have a reliable supply of fish they can catch throughout this throughout the year, basically everywhere they go. So mm-hmm. as, as a writer, that's one of the reasons the orca story was so um, important to me, because I felt like it was a way to talk to the region about the fact that everywhere is killer whale country. Eastern Washington is killer whale country. Eastern Oregon is uh, down there in California where you are is that these whales are taking salmon out of a vast area and those salmon are affected by everything along their migratory route whether it's temperature or sedimentation from grazing and logging uh, or farming uh, within the inland reaches of these streams or climate change increasing the surface temperature of the ocean where the, mm-hmm. where the food web uh, begins begins to become critically important in the survival of young salmon when they're out sea where they have to grow fast and and get big and hopefully return in four years. Uh, you know, it, it all counts. And, and what that tells us is we need to work hard uh, throughout this the life cycle of salmon. Every piece of their life cycle matters. And whether it's taking out dams or taking out dikes and taking out old water diversions and restoring the health of estuaries and wetlands and these riparian areas that the salmon depend on, you know, that's what it's going to take. And and we should feel empowered about that and fired up about that. I mean, unlike so many other things that were challenged by problems and so forth, in this case, at least we know what to do and we know that it works. I mean, this is not like world peace or other critical problems. I mean, in this case, we know exactly what to do. We're very good at this habitat restoration. We've seen the success of dam removal on the Elwha and the Klamath uh, dam removals are going to go forward. And that's just listing uh, two of the headliner dam removals that are happening. There are many others all over the region and other types of infrastructure removals, you know, basically undoing all this deadbeat infrastructure that's scattered over the landscape like so much trash from the early 1900s when we built a lot of stuff that nobody's using anymore. You know, it's broken down. It's not serving the people who depend on it anymore. There are better solutions both for the salmon and for the people. And this is just a matter of, of money and work. It's like anything else, it's just work. You identify your best cost benefit targets and you go do it. And there's nobody uh, better equipped than uh, the Northwest and, and California in terms of engineering and hydrological expertise to identify those targets and go get busy and do it. Well, and Karen writes, all- we must feed these animals. We cause their starvation. We're talking with Linda Mabes, environmental reporter for the Seattle Times. Her new book is Orca, Shared Waters, Shared Home. We'll be talking more with her after the break. You can join the conversation, 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed.org, or tweet us on Twitter or reach us on Facebook at KQED Forum. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Coming up this week on Forum, we'll hear from Michigan poet Jonah Mixon-Webster. I will die in Flint. 
in the early gloaming of a raid as blood honeys the fetid water. I will die in Flint, in a handoff without witness on any night, perhaps this night. We'll hear about Jonah Mixon Webster's new collection, Stereotype, about his experiences as a black queer man from Flint. To listen to past shows and subscribe to our podcast, visit kqed.org forum. For the latest updates on our programs and guests, find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're at KQED Forum. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about orcas, California's orcas. It isn't even too much of a stretch to say because these southern resident orcas roam all the way to the central coast in search of Chinook salmon. We're talking with Linda Mapes, environment reporter for the Seattle Times, who's written a new book about the orca, Shared Waters, Shared Home, really talking about how our fates are intertwined and the orca story very much being our story as well. If you want to join the conversation with questions or comments, you can by emailing us, forum at kqed.org, posting your comments on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, or you can always give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. And let me get to those. Bill in Los Gatos. Thanks for waiting, Bill. Oh, sure. Uh, I had a question if uh, uh, Linda has access to, uh, uh, are, are there any machine learning models that, that, that uh, represent uh, the orca and Chinook populations? along the California coast. Uh, Thanks, Bill. Yeah. Linda Mapes? I got to say, you've stumped me on that one. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Well, Bill, thanks for the question. Um, And let me see if I can read this comment from John, who writes, is it helpful for concerned citizens to refrain from buying Chinook salmon in restaurants and supermarkets? I love that question. And my answer for anyone who's worried about this is yes. Um, Why worry about it? Why wonder if the fish you bought is taking it out of an orca's mouth? Eat sockeye. Eat eat rockfish. There's so many wonderful choices. Um, Eat tuna. You've got all kinds of choices. I myself can't even afford Chinook, so it's not a problem. (laughs) Well, he tweets, do orcas have affection for humans? You know, orcas, as you were saying, really capture the imagination. And in answering this question, I'm also wondering if you could just remind us of how there was such public fascination um, in the 60s and 70s, especially when they were being captured. And I'm just curious, what is happening right now with all of that? Right. So this is a dark chapter in our history. Uh, And it all started right here in Seattle when Ted Griffin went up north at 
at the invitation of a fisherman to bring back a orca whale that had been caught in a fisherman's net and he brought it back to the Seattle Aquarium which is a different one from the one that's there today and he and he installed it there as the world's first ever performing live orca and this animal's name was Namu and probably you've heard of this whale and Namu only lived about a year before he was killed by pollution in Elliott Bay um, but, but before he died he became an international sensation suddenly people saw these animals up close for the first time and everybody wanted one and Puget Sound and the Salish Sea was the primary source of supply and uh, by the time whale catching was shut down in 1976 by three Republicans in Washington State uh, more than a third of the pods had been taken and in fact it was the youngest ones that they always wanted to get because they were the cheapest to ship and tragically, one of those whales is the only one left from that time. Her name is Lolita, and she's still alive in captivity in the Miami Seaquarium, where she has been for more than 50 years. In captivity in the smallest tank for an orca whale anywhere in the world. And uh, she's there all by herself. She has no contact, no uh it, it, no, uh, no escape. That's where she is. And the people at the Miami Seaquarium say that's the best place for her. Otherwise, she'd be in the Salish Sea where her relatives are struggling to survive. But I can tell you this, a reporter from Dateline NBC went down there to see her back when they used to allow reporters to take pictures of her. Uh, and, and you know what he did? He took a recording of Elpod calls and played them. And she came racing over to the side of the tank and put her ear to that recording and just wanted to hear it and hear it and hear it. Mm. And, uh, you know, it, it, that sense that she has a living family that is her family that's still here in the Salish Sea has the Lummi Nation and others still working for her release and return and retirement to a netted off cove somewhere uh, in the Salish where she could hear her family at least well, and those no longer shows have to perform. Always tried to present this idea that. Orcas did have affection for humans, but how would you define it? I don't think that's true. I mean, they, they have an enormous affection for one another and their own kind and society. They're definitely curious about us. I mean, these are smart animals with excellent vision. And I know that some of the scientists here in, um, in the Salish Sea who've spent the most time with them decades on the water are, are quite sure that they know the sound of their individual boats. Uh, but, you know, it's not about us. <laughs> <laughs> I promise. Well, let me go to caller Surrey in Cupertino. Hi, Surrey. Hi. Uh, I had a quick question about how are orcas affected by ocean eutrophication and like algae blooms, things like that? Oh, sorry, thanks. Yeah. So what what's going on there is uh, the deg the degradation of the water quality, which affects the food supply for the salmon, and therefore affects the salmon themselves. I mean, let's remember the old adage, which is little fish make big fish, which feed blackfish. And you know, I I love your question because it it connects the dots. I mean, everything matters from natural beaches where forage fish can spawn, and eelgrass and kelp beds where these little baby chinook and other salmon can rest and hide and feed. Uh, you know, all the way into out into the subtital zone. Uh, you know, you don't want bulkheads. You don't want a lot of hardening of that shoreline because then you lose those natural beaches that feed those uh, tiny little fish that grow up to be the juvenile salmon that go to sea that grow up to be the big fat salmon. And if you've got a big old algae bloom that's 
uh, polluting the water and taking the oxygen out of it, you know what you're losing, of course, are all the little things that feed the juvenile salmon. And um, we've had terrible results from the heat dome, and I know you have too. We lost uh, millions and millions of shellfish, and, and we're only beginning to understand the annihilation of insect life, which is affecting the birds and it's affecting the fish. You know, everything is connected. And so if you see a big old sick uh, eutrophied algae mat sitting there in a, in a near shore water or in a freshwater system, you can be sure that that's affecting the fish life too. Well, let me thanks Ray for the question. Tom writes, one ray of hope, four dams in the Klamath River are destined for removal by 2025. That will add hundreds of miles of potential salmon spawning grounds. This would significantly increase the salmon population in California. You are hopeful, as you've said multiple times, Linda Mapes. This one ray of hope, there are others, right, that you've noticed in terms of restoring habitats and so on. Absolutely. All over the region. There's so much dead stuff sitting out there that nobody even cares about that people just need to pay attention to and spend the money to take out. I can give you an example. So on the Similkameen River, which is in central Washington, there's a dam called the Enloe Dam. Guess the last year it made a kilowatt. 1957. <laughs> so it just sits there as a full passage blockage to uh, salmon into more than 100 miles of habitat on both sides of the border. But the poor Okanagan PUD is uh, so busy spending their money on replacing roasted power poles, they can't afford to take out that dam. Uh, they need partners, they need funding, they need help. And, and this kind of practical work is going on in communities all over the region. I can give you another example. The city of Bellingham last summer took out the Nooksack Dam. Why did they do that? Because it was a water diversion dam that was built a century ago. And they figured out that uh, continuing to spend the money on its maintenance was madness, that what they ought to do is just buy the water from Snohomish nearby, which they did. And they partnered with American Rivers, which provided the technical expertise and the Tulalip tribes and the state legislature, which provided the money and other NGOs and took it out. And it was gone. And last summer, for the first time in a hundred years, Chinook salmon are going back to the headwaters of the Nooksack River and ratepayers have a better deal for their water supply. So dam removal has marched from what seemed like a hippie crazy idea uh, 40 years ago to a mainstream solution to solve community problems and provide benefits for everyone from the orca to the salmon to communities that have old infrastructure sitting there that's costing them money and not not producing benefits or or even if it is still functioning there are other ways today to produce those same benefits so that you don't have to sacrifice the salmon in order to generate electricity or whatever it is that that dam is is doing and is it only dams it's dikes and it's bulkheads and it's all this hardened infrastructure all over our region uh, that was put in, in some cases, a long time ago, and we have other options today, other sources of electricity, other ways to uh, get done these critical tasks. And what's needed are rational, sensible uh, community processes, place by place, uh, to figure out what is the best answer and then go forward and do the work. Yeah, can you talk briefly about Canada's buyback program for fishers? This is fascinating. Uh, Canada has has really gone after the fishing uh, issue here, and and they've done it by 
reaching out to fishermen and saying, look, we, we know that this is an important piece of your local economy and we're not going to just abandon you. We're going to pay you to stop fishing. We're going to buy your gear. We're going to buy your boat and take you off the water. And I don't mean just for a summer. I mean forever that, that we have reached a point in some of these habitats where we cannot support the level of human take of these fish because we have got to have enough Chinook for wildlife and to feed the soil and to feed these streams and make them productive again. And this is a transition uh, that Canada has has spotted and is identifying as an important and critical change. Um, and that will have an effect, by the way, on Washington salmon as well, because a lot of Washington salmon are caught in Canadian waters. Let me go to Lewis in Saratoga. Hi, Lewis. Hi, um, I really love this conversation because um, especially in the Bay, we're especially impacted by it. I constantly think of as I'm going up some of these uh, concreted rivers and, and the way that we control our water that, you know, there used to be salmon here. Um, and I yeah. guess my comment was how I know we want to talk about blowing up dams or excuse me, taking down dams. But I think the way that we also need to think about it is in terms of native restoration along water sources too. I think we've gotten really removed from our water and I think natives mm -hmm. and planting natives and restoring those is the way to go. Thank you. Linda Mapes. Couldn't agree more. Absolutely. I mean, let's face it, we have extensively, uh, almost unimaginably altered our water courses. And, and you know, at a certain point, you do that at your peril. And it's you break it, you take it time. I mean, in some of these places, we have so altered the native ecology and native hydrology that you can't even support the beneficial uses that were intended. I mean, the Bureau of Reclamation can't support water use anymore in the climate. I mean, there just isn't enough water. And you know what? The Second Amendment doesn't fix that. People can get as angry as they want, but the fact is climate change is here. Climate change is real. And some of these massive alterations that uh, we, we inflicted on the native hydrology of these places decades and decades and decades ago have got to be rethought because they're not supportable. We're talking about Southern resident orcas and the crisis they're facing with Linda Mapes, environment reporter for the Seattle Times. Her new book is Orca, Shared Waters, Shared Home. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Michael tweets, how many of the king salmon that orcas eat were grown in a hatchery somewhere? Well, uh, hatcheries are critical to the survival of the orcas. And I know that uh, the native fish fans out there don't like hearing that, but the, the sad fact is that in rivers, say, let's just take the Columbia as one example, uh, more than 80% of the, of the fish that are in that system today are hatchery fish. Uh, you know, orcas don't care if a salmon is a salmon. They don't like shun hatchery salmon and only eat the wild. It's not like that. If it's a Chinook, it's in front of them, they're going to eat it. So, and, in, and as a matter of fact, um, in an unprecedented effort, there is right now a massive increase in uh, hatchery production specifically for orca. And this is truly wild. This is this has never been done before on this scale where you're you're raising uh, food for wildlife and putting it out there on the landscape. I mean, think about this. This would be like putting bays of alfalfa out for elk. <laughs> I mean, we're raising hundreds of millions of hatchery fish right now in Washington uh, and putting them out there in rivers with the hope that an orca will eat them. Well, is that going to work? I, I really don't know. It seems to me that if hatcheries were the answer, we wouldn't have a problem. Washington has the biggest hatchery system anywhere in the world. And we've been pumping hatchery fish into the Northeastern Pacific from, from all corners in all states for, for 100 years. And clearly we are where we are. So 
I don't know. Is that going to work? I, we'll see. We'll know in four years, won't we? But the reality is that hatchery fish are very important, not only to orcas, but also to Native American tribes. I mean, at this point, the, the wild runs are so depleted that if you did not have hatcheries, some of them run by tribes, many of them run by tribes, you wouldn't have salmon. But And the only thing that's going to fix that is habitat. I mean, we have got to allow these habitats to become functional, ecological, uh, ecologically viable places again. And I promise that if we do that, it will work. Look at the Elwha River. Here we had two dams entirely blocking salmon passage for more than 100 years. And those dams were taken out. And less than two years later, we've got 8,000 Chinook salmon boiling back into the mouth of the Elwha. So, you know, like I said earlier, these are not crybaby species. These are the two of the toughest animals on the planet. They've been around since the Pleistocene. Give them what they need and they will take care of the rest. Well, Morgan writes, can we the public work to free Lolita? What can we do? This yeah. is the, the uh, orca in captivity at the Miami Seaquarium that you were talking about earlier. Raise your voice. Use your voice. Uh, and I mean a real letter that you wrote yourself and put in an envelope with a stamp. That is such a surprise to people anymore that you think somebody died if you actually get a real letter. Write to your congressional delegation. Uh, write to your governor. Uh, ask them to press the Miami Seaquarium to to make this change. If that's what you want, you're going to have to raise your voice uh, and, and insist on it. Well, Lindsay tweets, have there been any sightings of the J-Pod this summer? I understand they haven't been seen in the Salish Sea for over 100 days. That's true. The last time they were seen was in April, which is just crazy. I can't tell you how disorienting and dislocating that is for those of us who live here. I mean, we have this thing called the San Juan Shuffle, which is the beautiful sight of J-Pod going up and down the west side of San Juan Island all summer long. They're, they're going up to the Fraser to, uh, to get Chinook salmon. And that has just been as regular as the weather for as long as anybody can even think of. And the, that is still regarded as core summer foraging range for the southern resident orcas. And we just are not seeing them. They're not coming here. And, and here's the real uh, telltale fact for me, which is the scientists that study these whales in the summer, they used to set up camp at the Friday Harbor Labs on San Juan Island. You know what? They've moved to Nia Bay on the outer coast. So it's a uh, it, I don't know how to feel about this. It, it feels both tragic and hopeful. Tragic in the sense that uh, it shows you how much we have perturbed the natural foraging range of this animal, but it also shows you their genius in, in, ad, in adaptability. They're, they're out there finding the fish. They're doing what they need to do to survive. And if that's sad for us, you know what? We caused it. We just have less than a minute left. And I wonder... Do they need a sanctuary? I mean, you were talking about all the ways that we can try to remove dams and do other things to try to increase the salmon populations, but uh, do they need one the way northern residents have? I mean, sure, why not? Why wouldn't we do that? Uh, and we, and I think most scientists would agree that it can only be beneficial. It won't be enough. I mean, they, they, they travel such a vast range and they need fish everywhere they go. And we can't make a no-go zone everywhere they go. So right, uh, right. don't don't fool yourself. There's no one answer to this problem. It's going to take all of us everywhere to bring back the productivity of these beautiful freshwater systems that produce the salmon that they need. 
Which goes back to your book's title, Shared Water, Shared Home, Orca by Linda Mapes, environment reporter for the Seattle Times. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for their questions, comments, concerns, and also my thanks to Susan Britton for producing today's segment. You've been listening to Forum and listening to Orcas. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.